listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. Come on in. Pull up a chair. Sit down. Make yourself comfortable. I, I don't know where you are right now, but where I am, it's cold and gray and damp outside. And yet here on the third floor of my house, in this little room where I'm recording this introduction, it's very warm and cozy. So I want to just welcome you and say, settle in. Settle in because I got a lot of stuff to share today. I do. I've been loading up for you. I mean, I don't just have a, I have a good conversation, but I got some news to share. Got some people to talk about. At the end of the show, I've even got a really cool quote that you won't expect. It's going to be a good episode. I really feel good about what I've got in store for you. So welcome. Yeah. And and especially welcome to you, Ruby Newman. Because Ruby Newman is the newest sponsor of the show through Patreon. I've really enjoyed this year thanking the people that that support the show. And and Ruby doesn't just, she didn't just sign on as a patron, but for a long time, she's been sending these incredibly warm and thoughtful notes, commenting on the program, talking about why things matter to her, how they connect, sharing stories of her life. And I love that stuff. I love knowing who's out there. I mean, I feel like I, I can better aim the conversation if I know who I'm talking to. And it's really good to have you in the audience, Ruby. And uh, Jonathan Shriver, You might be surprised to hear your name because I don't even know if you are a financial supporter yet, but you probably are, but you certainly send good emails. And uh, Jonathan sent an email just recently, uh, which in the run-up to Christmas, I thought was particularly apt. And he said, I appreciated your show about navigating the holidays. He said, for myself, I remember when C.S. I remember C.S. Lewis who once said, wrote that we must either accept that Jesus is Lord, liar, or lunatic. That's a very famous formulation of C.S. Lewis, basically saying, "Listen, you don't have the choice of being gracious with Christianity and, and just saying, oh, well, that's nice. That's that's just a nice way of thinking about things.'" He said, "Either it's either Jesus was crazy, or he was an evil liar trying to deceive people, or he's the Lord of all." time. And and it was interesting because Jonathan quoted a friend of mine named Tony Jones. And he said, Tony used to say, there's another option. He said, you could, you could accept Jesus as a legend, you know, somebody who existed, but probably not the way they wrote him up, but who's, who's gathered a a sort of a story around him and, and, and a mythology around him that has made him hugely significant. And you can, you can sort of go like, I love that story. I love that mythology. Um, in the way that we love other myths because they tell us something about human nature and they, they communicate something about our aspirations and, and they're magical and wonderful and you don't have to take them literally to find meaning in them. And uh, I appreciate that, Jonathan. I, you know, I think, as you probably figured out, I appreciate anybody who's trying to find ways to stay connected to people who think and believe differently rather than looking for excuses to otherize them and push them away. I was thinking about both John, Jonathan and Ruby today when I saw and heard uh, on the radio about Mark Galley 
the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today, writing this very um, noteworthy, it drew a lot of attention editorial in which he said it was time for Trump to leave office. It was time for him to go. And of course, you know, Christianity Today is the flagship magazine of conservative evangelicalism, the mainstream of evangelicalism that is the, the center of Trump's support base. And so it was really remarkable for him to come out and say, Trump's crossed the line. He, he's not moral enough to be our president. And you think to yourself, wow, it took you this long to notice that the guy wasn't moral. Um, grab him by the pussy, didn't do it for you, huh? Like the racism didn't do it. But, but it was interesting because Galley said, like, look, in one of the interviews I heard on NPR, he said, it, being with Trump has been sort of like being married to a verbally abusive man who's a good father and a good provider. He said, you know, maybe you put up with it because uh, of all the good stuff he brings. But if he then hits you, he crosses the line. I mean, it's just a terrible analogy. You know, you just, it's very problematic that he didn't. But he sort of said, and, and, and with the Ukraine incident, Trump crossed the line to being like a physical abuser. And now he has to go. You have to throw him out. And uh, here's the quote. He said, the facts in this instance are unambiguous. The president of the United States attempted to use his political power to coerce a foreign leader to harass and discredit one of the president's political opponents. That is not only a violation of the Constitution. More importantly, it is profoundly immoral. And then he goes on and he says, the reason many of us are not shocked by this is that the president has dumbed down the idea of morality in his administration. He has hired and fired a number of people who are now convicted criminals. He himself has admitted to immoral actions in business and in his relationships with women, about which he remains proud. His Twitter feed alone, with its habitual string of mischaracterizations, lies, and slanders, is a near-perfect example of a human being who is morally lost and confused. Interesting that he should, he should put it that way. And then what's funny was in the interview, he said, you know, you don't even need to be a Christian to, real, to recognize that this president is immoral. And I found myself sort of laughing and saying, yeah, actually being a Christian might obfuscate your ability to see that he was immoral. The rest of us saw it a long time ago. Um, so, but I, I don't want to pile on the evangelical Christians just at a moment where somebody's finally broken ranks. And I, I'm just really grateful for that. And I think we need to, we need to be grateful that there are some leaders in that movement who, and it's hard to see past your own self-interest. It's hard when somebody's giving you everything you want on Israel and on abortion and on separation of church and state or the lack thereof and, and on protecting religious freedoms that shouldn't be protected. When he's given you everything that you ever wanted out of a president, it's hard sometimes to look past that and see that at the same time he's blowing up the world and endangering the U.S. Constitution and undermining the future of our, of, of our very society. It's hard. And so it's kind of a a cool thing when somebody can see past their own self-interest for a minute. And, uh, and we, it gives me a little bit of hope at, at a time when it's very hard 
to be hopeful that the fabric of our society is going to hold together. So yeah, that was a cool thing. And you know, speaking of engaging Christians around issues that threaten our very existence, the conversation I've got to share with you with my old friend, Emma Bloomfield. And when I say old friend, she's not old. She's actually relatively young. I got to know her out in California when I was at USC. She was a PhD student uh, in rhetoric there. Um, and she is now a communications professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And she's just written this book um, called Communication Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics, which is which probably a more pithy title would be, you know, how to talk to Christians about climate change. And in our conversation, she, she really lays out kind of what she learned from talking to loads and loads of evangelical Christians who are climate skeptics. And I think that there's a larger lesson in how to engage other people that's probably worth listening to. Um, it was definitely worth listening to, but probably is especially relevant at this particular moment in history. Um, and so on, it's, it's interesting because even as I was talking to her about this book, it's one of those books that, you know, it was her academic dissertation. It's thoroughly researched. If it gets published as a book and the only people that are going to read it are academicians. Um, but I found an article where Emma distills the, the, the book um, on a website called The Conversation. And so I, in the show notes, I'll put that there. So if you want to sort of catch up with the actual literature, there, there, there's a connection to the book and then there's also a connection to the article. But I, I think you'll like Emma. She is a good person and a good thinker. And uh, I enjoyed catching up with her. And it's, and it's kind of fun when somebody that you were working with when they were a student now all of a sudden is out there doing the academic thing and molding other people's minds and, and shaping the conversation. It's just kind of a cool thing. I mean, if you live long enough, um, the kids on your little league, that, that, that you coached on little league teams are, are, end up being your doctor. And, uh, and it's fun. All right. Is there further ado? I think I think we'll not, I will not further ado you. I think I'll just get get to this get to this conversation and then uh, and then get to the cool quote on the other side. So here you go. This is me and Emma Bloomfield talking about climate change. I'm so glad to be talking to you again after so long. I know it's been too long. It's funny because I'm looking out my window and it's a cold, bleak, rainy day here in Cincinnati. And I'm thinking of you and me sitting outside the little coffee shop, you know, having 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 a conversation on the sunny campus of USC. Yes, we all miss LA weather. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what's funny is like I it's like I miss the weather. I miss you. I don't miss LA. <laughs> Yes. Well, there were definitely bright spots and not so bright spots. <laughs> so so where are you sitting right now? I am sitting on my couch uh, in Las Vegas, Nevada. Well, that's that's got pretty warm weather too, doesn't it? Yeah, it's been a little dreary recently. We've gotten some rain, but overall the weather's very similar to LA, so I feel very lucky. How do you like Las Vegas? 
I love it. Honestly, Las Vegas is great. I love the city. I love the students at UNLV. Uh, it's been absolutely amazing. Three what, years what now I've been here. <laughs> three years? Yep. Three years now. Yeah. Wow. Time flies. It does. Um, so, so what do you love about the city? Like what's great about Las Vegas? I think what's great about Las Vegas is there's a little bit of everything. If you want, there's world-class restaurants, amazing entertainment just a mile away. And if you don't want it, it's a lovely town with local restaurants and local people and schools. It's got a taste of everything. So there really is this other Las, other Las Vegas that, that the, the tourists on the Strip don't know about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Strip is just a very small part of it. I have some colleagues at UNLV who haven't been anywhere near the Strip in decades. <laughs> you can live a whole <laughs> life not even looking at it. <laughs> have you gone up there to see shows and stuff? Yes. Uh, my husband and I have a season pass to the theater. So we oftentimes go to the downtown area of Las Vegas and we'll usually go to a nice restaurant beforehand. So maybe once a month or so, just a little so, taste. So when you know. say the theater, is that like Britney Spears? Oh, no. <laughs> I mean the <laughs> Broadway theater. So they call it the Smith Center is our version of the Pantages. Yeah. Oh, and do they bring in good shows? Oh, absolutely. Hamilton's coming next year. I'm very excited for that. See, it's weird though. Like I'm here in Cincinnati and they bring those sh traveling shows through mm -hmm. here, but they have them in this huge theater. Like that's, it's so not a Broadway theater. And so if, if you get a cheap seat there, you are so far away. You don't know what's going on. Like do, is, is the oh, theater that you shame. go to a good theater? Yeah, it's fantastic. I really like the Smith Center. We have good seats and always great performances. Oh, nice. Mm -hmm. oh, that's, that's cool. All right. So the reason I want to talk to you, not just because I like you, <laughs> you, you, you got a book. Yes. And your book is about, on some level, I mean, a very particular kind of communication that's going on or, you know, a, a conversation that's going on between climate change and Christianity. Yes. Is that is that a fair is that a fair summary? Yes, absolutely. The book is about the intersection of Christianity and environmental beliefs. Tell me why 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 are you writing this? Why did you write this book? What 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 is that? What is interesting to you about that intersection? I think one of the the primary drivers of the book was my experience with science communication and and science rhetoric and religious rhetoric and and, and how they come together. So I became very fascinated in why people reject scientific claims that we know to be true, we know to be facts. And in thinking about religion as one of those sort of go-tos, right, as oppositional to science, I started learning about how it's much more complicated than that, that it's not just about science versus religion, but that religion is a way of knowing, a way of seeing the world that influences how people might accept, uh, reject, or, or modify scientific information. So my dissertation work compared the communication strategies of creationists and Christian climate change skeptics. And I found that the strategies that they used to make sense of science were very similar, even though they were talking about very different topics, human origins and evolution or the environment. So if I understand you right, what you're saying is, is that the creation, the creationists 
and the climate skeptics, would you say like, do they map pretty cleanly onto each other? Are they the same people? Well, in the in the dissertation, I argue that there are sort of three categories or types of uh, ways that Christians and these scientific topics topics map onto each other. But yes, mm-hmm. um, I in a lot of ways, if you believe um, in one of these things, it, it might predict right or align with your belief in other areas, but not necessarily. It's not deterministic in that sense. Okay. So there's there's an overlap, but it's not it's not a, a a unity. It's not the exact same thing, but there's there's a pretty big overlap. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I think it and, it makes sense that if you think you know if your faith drives you to think a certain way about science regarding topic A, it'll at least lead you to similar conclusions for topic B. It's not a perfect alignment with the people that I spoke to and the research that I did, but I think you could say there's some relationship there. Okay. And so, and, and, and what drives both of these ways of, of approaching things is this, is this kind of different way of knowing that these Christian folk have as opposed to the scientific community. Well, I was sort of re, uh, researching how people who are religious still incorporate scientific ways of knowing. So not thinking about them as exclusive necessarily. Okay. But how people might make make sense of and use multiple resources for knowing. All right, so let me get out of the way and and tell me <laughs> tell me what you found out. Like what what did you discover? So I think one of the key points of the book which came out of my dissertation work, Christians think very differently about the environment. So I was trying to break down the idea that Christians were a monolithic homogenous group that all thought the same way about the environment and also that climate skeptics uh, all think the same way uh, about the environment. So I was really trying to tease out more nuances of how people come to know information and that religion is not necessarily always an obstacle to climate change communication and climate change advocacy. So one of the things that I learned that I thought was really important was in my engagement with people across these three categories I developed, people wanted to be listened to. They wanted to have open dialogue. They wanted to establish mutual respect. And they were willing to have these conversations with me about what is really a, a controversial topic. Okay. But so I learned a lot just listening to them as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it, is always, it is always interesting to listen to people, especially people that you don't necessarily agree with or that you don't necessarily understand. Um, there's always more going on than you think. But like, give me some examples in, in terms of when you say Christians think differently about the environment. How do mm-hmm. they think? Yeah. So in the book, I developed a typology, uh, three groups I call uh, separators, bargainers, and harmonizers. So the first category of separators are those sort of traditional groups that we think of when we think of Christian climate skeptics. They're quite aggressive. They see the environment and their faith as oppositional. They'll oftentimes categorize the environment and environmental advocacy as sort of liberal plots, right, or part of a liberal agenda. Um, And they can be quite polarizing in their attitudes towards the environment and, and as a result, environmental science and what climate scientists say. And do you know why they, why, why do they think that way? So I characterize them as operating within a 
certain a polarized worldview. It's called a, a melodrama worldview where there's good and there's evil um, and there's no room for compromise. So they make sense of their world through these polar opposites. So they're not they're not uh, polarizing by accident. It's it's literally they live in a good guys right. and bad guys world, like black hats, white hats, and yep. and they see climate change scientists as being the bad guys. Right, because they would say the separators would say that the Bible and their faith are the ultimate authority, and anyone seemingly in their perspective that challenges that uh, would immediately be the enemy. And what do you, and what do they think the Bible says about the environment? Like if they go like the Bible's the ultimate authority on the environment, and the Bible says the environment is fine and will last forever, or like how does the Bible, in their view, look at the environment? Yeah, that's a great question because the answer is it's a variety of things. Some people I interviewed pointed to the hierarchy where God created man and woman and then nature and the environment. So humans are more important, right, than the natural world. Some people talked about the apocalypse and the second coming and how the world is temporary, but people, right, and God are immortal. Um, mm -hmm. In a sense, right, we'll live on past um, our earthly existence. Some people talked about uh, the dominion verse of the Bible that says, you know, Adam and Eve will have dominion, right, over the garden. So thinking about um, specifically giving humans the power and control over the natural world. So there's quite a variety of things. Other people pointed to, um, I can't remember the exact verse number, but the verse about after the global, after Noah's flood, um, the God saying that he will never flood the earth again. So, so different verses people pointed to as evidence that there wasn't anything to worry about really with the earth. And even if there was, it's only temporary. Wow. That's okay. So on some level, they're just going like, look, Bible tells us that we're more important. We're mm -hmm. more immortal. Yep. We're in charge and we're not in danger. Right. Like, so we're good here. Yep. I was just going to say, it reminds me back in, back when I used to run this youth workers, Christian youth workers, um, conference, I remember one of my favorite sermons was this guy who was preaching against materialism and, uh, you know, talking about how we should sacrifice everything. And he had this great line where he started just saying, you know, you say you're so, you're so concerned about your house. Let me tell you one thing about your house. It's going to burn. And mm. they say, your car, it's going to burn. And the crowd picked it up and, and they were like, your clothes, they're going to burn. The Detroit Lions, they're going to burn. You know, like the whole idea was like, all of this stuff is incredibly temporary. So don't worry about any of it. Right. The, the things that really matter are these spiritual realities because the world's all going to be consumed um, and we're going to all be spirited away to a better, to a better reality. Um, so I guess you, you, you probably... I don't know if you encountered anybody who was screaming, it's going to burn, but. I don't think it, at that level of enthusiasm, <laughs> it sounds like you experienced, but people were definitely yes. arguing, hey, if this world is only temporary, then it doesn't really matter, you know, what we yeah. do to it or what's happening to it. God's ultimately in control anyway. Yeah. Okay. So those are the separators because they see their reality and their truth as being separate from the, the, these other ideas that are being thrown at them. Yeah, exactly. And I had I wanted to pull up a quote from um, a separator that I had spoken to who talked about 
the environment and animals are useless beyond their value to humans as tools, as a food source, and as entertainment. And that was all the value, right, that this person would give to uh, non-human nature. And Just Emma, as an my example. friend, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, I wasn't, I wasn't that crude about it, but I was probably there 20 mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, like I, I really did think that there was an infinite qualitative distinction between human beings and every other form of life because we were the point we were, and, and they were, they were basically subservient or they were there for us. And right. it never occurred to me that, um, I was part of a continuum of life. Um, I always thought that there, there's human life and there's everything else. Yeah. That was a very common conversation point when I spoke to people I classified yeah, as separators. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird. I, I don't know if you have any animals of your own, um, but I never wanted dog or cat mm. because I was like, listen, there's starving people in the world. Like dogs don't, you know, why would you, why would you spend any energy taking care of an animal when you should, all of your energy should be focused on taking care of people. And it was really weird how after I left the faith and, and sort of grew into an, a, a secular worldview that all of a sudden I thought like, wait a second, dogs, dogs have personalities and dogs are evolved mm -hmm. to love us and to be loved by us. And, and there's real value in that dog's life. In some ways I, I probably downgraded the infinite value of my own life, but upgraded all the animals around me. And I found myself having a very different relationship with animals when I left that, when I left that worldview. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have any pets right now, but growing up, our house was a zoo. We had a ton of animals. <laughs> so I very much appreciate and love them. So what, what okay. So I got the separators. Mm -hmm. Who, who's the next group? So the next group is the bargainers. They are also people who we would classify as climate change skeptics, but they're certainly not as aggressive and polarized in their language. Instead, they modify their interpretations of climate science and environmentalism to fit their existing beliefs about the earth. So instead of separators who would reject ultimately that climate science has any authority on the matter, bargainers would cherry pick and pick and choose what aspects of climate science that they want to adopt. Um, so for example, me, like what? Yeah. So for example, there are reports that increased carbon dioxide in the air is, can be helpful and beneficial to agriculture and the growth of plants because plants consume CO2. This is technically true, but it's certainly not true at the levels of CO2 currently right in our atmosphere. But bargainers would just cherry pick the first part, right, where increased CO2 is good for plants and say, oh, climate science proves my perspective that we don't have to do anything about climate change is correct and ignore the part of the argument that says, hey, at these levels of CO2, there's no increased benefit to plant life because um, everything will die. So they've got the same, in, in some sense, they've got the same conclusion as right. the first group, but rather than dismissing the science, they're going to try to marshal the science to support the same conclusion, which is everything's all right here. We're, we're exactly like we're fine. Everything's fine because God, and, and, and the, the under, I would assume that the underlying reason that they're convinced that everything is fine is the same as the other group, which is, Hey, God is ultimately in control of the universe. Yeah. 
Yeah, God so, is ultimately in control and there are other more important things to worry about. Yeah. And so science ultimately will, if we look at it, if we look at it with the right lens, yep. we'll see that science is confirming that God is a good caretaker, that he knows what he's doing, that the universe is okay. Yep, that's exactly right. The the bargainers are the group that are likely to point to those outlier scientists, right, who still say that uh, there's not enough evidence for climate change. They're advocates for performing more research um, into climate change, even though it's been proven, you know, hundreds of times over. So they're more of the conversation delayers. And they say, well, let's keep doing research. Look at the science that says everything's okay. Let's not look at that other science as a way to stall policy action. Demographically, are they, do they live next door to this, these other people? Like, are, are they in different denominations? Are they, are they more educated, less educated? Like, what, what, you met these people, you talked to them. What was the difference right. between them in practice? So I did most of my interviews virtually. And I, as part of talking to me, I promised my subjects anonymity. So if you read my book, all of the names are pseudonyms and they're not meant to be reflective of gender or, or race or, or demographics. Some people disclosed that information to me, but I didn't have enough information to make any kind of generalizations about who these people are or where they live. Okay. So then what's the third group? The third group is the harmonizers. So these are people who we might classify as being in the creation care movement. So these are people who see their faith driving them to be environmental advocates. And they see God and Christianity and the Bible as supporting um, environmentalism and climate science. So they read the same verses, but they interpret them differently? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I have people who I interviewed who talked about the same Dominion verse that the separators talked about, but they said when properly interpreted, Dominion means we have to take care of animals and non-human nature because we were put in charge of them and we wouldn't want to deny our sacred charge uh, to care for the rest of the earth. It's so they might look at exactly stewards. the same texts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. More of the stewardship approach uh, to the environment. Though it's interesting because separators will use that same term of stewardship, but they will say being good stewards is not sacrificing human life for the environment. Yeah, it's stewarding to what end? And so, you know. Exactly. So, so I'm curious because when I was still in the faith, you know, I, I used to run around with people like Ron Sider and Gordon Eshelman, people that were running things like the Christian Environmental Network mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, evangelicals for social justice and, and evangelicals for climate, you know, protection and things like that. Did you, did you encounter any of those people at, at the level of or organized Christianity dealing with climate stuff? Yes, absolutely. I spoke to people in the evangelical environmental network and young evangelicals for climate action. So people who self-disclosed, they were active in creation care groups. Were they, were they, did they fall into the same three categories? Yeah, those are harmonizers. So they think that their faith drives them to be environmental advocates. Yeah. Yeah. And they see a marriage. They see a harmony as they're called harmonizers, right? They see a harmony between their faith and what climate science tells them. It's always, it's always interesting to me when I would meet those people because they would be so data driven around mm -hmm. CO2 in the atmosphere. And then you go like, 
well, why don't we, could we apply that same sort of standard of, of judgment onto like an issue of, you know, whether God exists or whether mm, Jesus, mm-hmm. and they would go like, oh no, like that's a different domain. You know, right. <laughs> we don't, we don't play science over there. And I think that's what I was mentioning before, right? Is that even though we might expect people to be consistent, right? There would be um, climate change skeptics who are Christian who aren't necessarily creationists, right? And there might be people in the harmonizers category who believe, you know, who have different attitudes towards science, as you say, in other domains. Yeah. So they don't necessarily track onto each other. It's not deterministic. If you believe A, you have to believe B. So now your your research, if I'm understanding, wasn't neutral in the sense of one of the questions you were asking is if we were going to try to bring this this christian community into allyship if they were going to become part of the solution mm-hmm. of climate change how do we talk to them right and i think like in some ways that's that's a, a very specific example of a larger question that sometimes people have at their thanksgiving table or yes. You, you know, with their in their families is I'm not going to talk these folks out of Christianity. So how do I how do I talk to them in their own language to get them to be more humanistic or get them to be more responsible citizens around whether it's gun control or women's rights or climate change? Right, and, and and so I'm curious, like, what did you like? Did you come to any conclusions about? Yeah, you want to talk to these people. Here's how you talk to them. Yes, absolutely. So, the title of the book is "Communication Strategies for Engaging Climate Skeptics." So, in addition to research about the kinds of strategies that they used, I also in our in my conversations tried out different strategies for engaging the conversation and keeping the conversation going. So uh-huh. the last chapter of the book is an executive summary of a variety of different talking points and strategies that I propose for talking with anyone about climate change and then talking with each of these specific categories. So my basic conclusion is that if people think about the environment and climate change in different ways, then we'll probably want to talk to them about the environment and climate change in different ways. And there's not going to be a single silver bullet that you can use to engage anybody in a climate conversation. Yeah. So how, okay. So I understand I've got three different kinds of Christians out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, probably, Probably the harmonizers are to some degree most on the side of environmentalism, climate change responses. I mean, they're they're probably kind of with a Christian veneer, they're on our side. Yes. Okay. So focusing on the other two groups, um, how do you talk to those people? Like, like, like what are the approaches that you use with somebody who, the scripture is they go like, hey, this is this is the the the, the truth, and right. yours isn't the the, the 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 separators. How do you talk to them? Yeah, so I'll first say that you're right that the harmonizers are really believers in in climate change. So my strategies for talking to them are more along the lines of turning belief into action and motivating them right to be more active and and open about mm-hmm. their 
their beliefs. But yeah, the separators and the bargainers, it's really not about changing their minds per se, which is why the title of the book is not communication strategies for persuading climate skeptics, but it's really about how do you take what they already believe and show them that it's in line with environmental ways of thinking. So for example, that separator I I talked about before who said that the earth and animals only have use to us for their use as a food source and as entertainment. I spoke with that person and asked them, well, what if the earth got to a point where it was so damaged, we couldn't use it anymore as a food source and as entertainment? Doesn't that mean we should put some effort into protecting the environment so we can continue to use it? So instead of trying to challenge their utilitarianism, to challenge their fundamental belief of, I only see this animal as a food source, you can actually extend their line of thinking and show them how environmental actions can be compatible with that belief. How do we get more food out of these animals? Well, I think the the response I was talking about was saying, if the environment is so damaged, right, if climate change happens to such a degree that animals and plants are dying, then they obviously won't serve any purpose for us anymore. Right, right. Like, how mm-hmm. do we maximize these animals for our food and entertainment? And you're like, right. well, to do that, you would probably have to, you know, reduce the amount of carbon you are pumping into the air because that's reducing the number of animals that we can eat and have fun looking at. Exactly. So, yeah, so you're not trying, you're not, you're not only not trying to persuade them about the God stuff, you're not even trying to persuade them to have a different view of animal stuff and climate stuff, but you are trying to persuade them that the scientists are right, that the carbon is a problem. Yes, because I'm thinking, I'm asking them to think about the implications, right, of what climate science is telling us about the beliefs that they already hold. So especially for the separators, I advocate not trying to directly challenge any of their beliefs because that'll immediately put them on the defensive and frame you as the enemy. So I, ex- I instead call the strategy asking questions and accepting their premises. So accepting the ideas that they come to the conversation with and working with those, right? To figure out how we can find alignment with environmentalism. <laughs> sort of like, I, sometimes I talk to mental health professionals who say, you know, a person will come in and they'll say, you know, everybody's a robot. Right. And they're sort of like, okay, but if ever, you know, how are we going to get all the robots to do what you want? And, and they're trying to elicit better behavior out of the person without challenging their fundamental assumption that everybody's a robot. Right. I think it, it's not necessarily a fair comparison, but there's a strategy <laughs> when sure someone has dementia or Alzheimer's to jump into that story, right? And that delusion that they have and work with them as opposed to trying to challenge it, right? Um, Because that can exacerbate some of the symptoms and some of the side effects. Yeah, it's funny. It reminds me of this story I once heard on This American Life about these two improv artists that were dealing with a parent with Alzheimer's. Mm. And they realized that they were constantly correcting her. And they thought, well, in improv, you go, yes, and. Mm -hmm. And so she would say, you know, my husband is still alive and he's in the next room. And they're like, yes. Yeah. And we should go get a bath to get ready, you know, get ready for him when he comes out. And then by the time they had had the bath, the, the, that thought 
that the husband was in the next room may have gone away, but right. they, that they found it was a lot less upsetting to say, no, he's not. Remember, he died 20 years ago and that it would just be a nightmare. Um, and it sounds like you you adopted a little bit of a yes and attitude towards these folks. Yeah, it's funny because my brother is uh, in improv, so I'm sure he would agree with that characterization. Always say yes and. <laughs> so, so what about the group in the middle? Yeah, so the bargainers are similar to the separators in that they are climate skeptics. And I, I strategize that to talk to bargainers, you have to build on their uh, reliance and their acceptance of certain scientific facts and encourage them to see the full picture. So think about employing additional examples about climate science, right? Give them additional ways that they can see their perspective uh, about their faith and about the, the environment as aligned. So get, tell me to, how that would work in a real yeah, conversation. Give a concrete example. So yeah. I was thinking about one bargainer that I spoke to had a dual belief in the, in his faith that said that they were, that the earth was going to be fine and resilient. And also the idea of their politics, that their conservative identity was that they shouldn't be doing something right about the environment. And that was against their politics. So I began employing examples of people uh, that were believed that same faith that they had, um, but also were advocates for the environment. So for example, people like Catherine Hayhoe, who is an atmospheric climate scientist, but also an evangelical. So thinking about giving people examples of situations or of people who they can map on and respect. Um, that kind of strategy probably won't work with a separator because they don't believe in compromise, right? And these blended identities. But for a bargainer that's in that sort of blended negotiated space, those kinds of examples can be more effective. I would have thought with that that person, you would have needed to find a political conservative. Sometimes I might have intersectionality. I might be a Christian and I might also be a Republican. Oh, of course. And mm -hmm. I might think it's a good Republican doesn't do this. Even Chris, you know, you can show me a Christian that does, but I go, guy, he's probably a Democratic Christian. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm looking for a good Republican that does this. Like, is Catherine Hayhoe conservative? Is she, like, would she, would she fall into the, the right, that same guy's category? Um, I'm not actually sure of her, her personal political orientation. I know that for that bargainer, talking about her was helped them to want to do more research, right? And think about um, the relationship between their faith and climate science. For other people I spoke to who were politically conservative and economically conservative, what helped was finding examples of companies that had adopted environmentally friendly policies and showing them how you can make long-term financial benefits and changes by becoming environmentally friendly. So I think it depends very Which, personally on who you're talking to yeah. and where they're getting their information from. That, that, that's, that's very funny that you bring up that example because I'm like, well, what does that have to do with God or Jesus or, or mm. any of it? It's just you can make money. Well, yeah, I think there's, there's a bit of a Protestant ethic going on about oh, okay. hard work, you know, individualism. Um, yeah, so if know. a hardworking company, if a, if a rugged individualist, right. you know, sort of is, is making, a, making money by taking the, the climate situation seriously, that, that 
legitimizes it in some way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So, I mean, did you come away hopeful? Like, do you think like these people, they can not be reasoned with, but they can be, they can be engaged. They can become part of, part of a, a, a better world. Or did, did you come away thinking these people are crazy? I'm, I'm never, gonna, <laughs> we're never going to, we're never going to bring them on. Yeah, I came away very hopeful of the nearly 100 people I spoke to. Only one person was incredibly rude and aggressive and prematurely ended the conversation. Uh, I think there's a an assumption that because the, the an issue like climate change is so controversial and we hear from the loudest voices on either end, we forget that that's a very small amount of people who actually occupy those categories in those spaces. So doing this research gave me for appreciate gave me an appreciation for all the various types of people in between. So not the most extreme earth first I'm going to live in a tree kind of person and not the most extreme I deny science and climate science in every single aspect, but that so many people occupy that middle space. I was very encouraged by how many people, even with just a simple, hey, I'm doing a research project, do you want to talk to me about the environment? How many people wanted to have that conversation? I think a lot of the politicalization of climate change has prevented people from being comfortable having these kinds of conversations, especially Christians who do care about the environment, feel like they can't, quote unquote, come out as environmentalists because there's so much animosity, perceived animosity, I think, that if you are a Christian and if you are conservative, you have to be a climate skeptic. So I'm hopeful that if we keep having conversations, we can, yeah, have have more appreciation for a potentially positive use of Christianity um, to advocate for the environment. Well, that is the thing, isn't it? That these days it feels like there are whole bundles of issues that get bundled right. together. Right. And you sort of go, as long as I'm going to go with the candidate that has 90% of my issues and I'll shut up about the other 10. Right. Um, it, it doesn't feel like people are able to, it, it feels like we as a nation have become almost unable to hold sort, sort of a la carte positions. Yeah, you know, where you it, take a mm-hmm. take this from that and that from this other, like right. it, it, you know, it feels like if you're going to be this way about guns, well, then okay, then you you got to line up on that. There's a whole set of issues that that's your coalition. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes from the whole book was a harmonizer I spoke to who said that they felt like abortion was the hill that Christians had to die on, and that so many Christians were unable to see the broader picture of all the ways that being pro-life means not just for this person, doesn't mean unborn children, but pro-life means I care about all of nature and all life and people's health throughout the life cycle. And this person felt that Christians were getting distracted by this very narrow perception of what pro-life meant, that they would always vote Republican no matter what, and wouldn't even see how other candidates or other political parties were embodying those same ideals. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's always been the great irony to me is that the same people that are so, you know, incredibly against abortion rights are in the, in the same breath talking to you about the death penalty. 
And you're right. like, wait, I thought we were talking about the sanctity of life. And they're like, oh, it's just a totally different thing here. Right, um, right. You know, you know, so there is the, 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 the inconsistency of some of the, the stuff is, is very weird. And, you know, in some ways, though, I, I see the same thing happening on the left. Of course, where yeah. I feel like if you're, I feel like there there are issues around um, wokeness or mm. your attitude about gender as a construct or these things that, like, if you're generally a progressive thinker, people are sort of like, well, I know where you know you then you better be with us on this gender mm. as a construct thing, and some of some of the liberal folks that I know are almost feeling like they're, they're pushing me out. They're pushing me into the other camp because I'm not, you know, I'm too conservative on these three issues and they don't want me anymore with the progressives. And, you know, I, I sometimes fear that if, that, that if we get too orthodox with our, with our, you're, you're, you're with us all the way, or you're not with us all at all, we're going to drive a lot of people to the other side of the divide. Yeah, I think political polarization has had a lot of negative consequences, and that's one of them, right? Where people who seem to not be pure in their identity are thus traitors, right? Or are somehow not allowed to be part of the group because we we create these really pure identities. And I think something that I really study as a rhetorician and as a communication studies scholar is how people want to have logically consistent worldviews. Right. It makes sense. We don't want to have all this cognitive dissonance in our everyday lives. So we construct a logic that makes sense to us. It may look illogical to other people who don't hold that logic, but it typically is consistent. Right. Based on our own definitions, based on our own categorizations of things. So for you and me, it may seem logically inconsistent to measure life differently. Uh, but for them, if they have a way that they constantly identify and distinguish this kind of life from that kind of life, it doesn't become inconsistent anymore. Yeah, yeah. And and I'm going to turn this into a little bit of an evangelical movement in myself uh-huh. because there's going to be somebody listening to this conversation. And I'm thinking in particular of this guy I grew up with in high school, Ricky Diamond, um, the single funniest person <laughs> I've, I've ever been with. Like I laugh all the time with him. He's just... And, and everybody feels this way. It's not just me. I mean, he's just a, an incredibly entertaining person. And, and, you know, he's not a guy who does a lot, any public speaking. That's not his thing. But like at a party, he's amazing. Like over dinner, he will slay you. And I think in some sense, that's a kind of a public intellectual too, or a kind of a public discourse or two, where I feel like I almost want to challenge, there, there are people listening to this podcast and they're going to be, they're going to go like, yeah, I'm pretty good at telling a story. I'm a good storyteller. Like I can, you know, if I tell you about this funny thing that happened to me on the way to the, the grocery store last mm-hmm. week, like people, it's, it's an engaging story. And the kids are like, oh, tell them that story about when we were camping and the bear showed up because he knows how to tell the story. She knows how to tell the story. And I'm thinking that if, if you're that kind of person, really, in some sense, we need you to read some climate books. <laughs> right. And to to get to the place where you understand a concept enough that you're that you can find a way to talk about it in that Ricky Diamond way that people go like, I just want to listen to him. Yeah, I think it's interesting because natural storytellers 
will have that innate sense of what makes a good story, but they might not know why what they're doing creates a good story. So something that communication scholars and rhetoricians do is examine, well, what makes a good story? What are those elements you can narrow it down to, to then actually instruct like other people who might not be good storytellers, right? Thinking about what is it component-wise or, or style-wise that makes that story engaging and compelling and grab people's attention. But I really appreciate the idea that you're saying, like, I'm going to do some academic study into what makes a good story and how storytelling plays into this climate change thing. Right. Because it sounds like you really are trying to arm people with um, an arm might be the wrong term for a person who's so into dialogue, but you're trying <laughs> to equip people yeah. with the tools to engage other people in a respectful, but, but in maybe a and maybe in an effective way that says, I'm not going to try to change your whole worldview, but I am going to try to like spin it so that you become part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Yeah. One of the conversations I had with a, with a bargainer was they were very skeptical of peer review and publishing and thought climate scientists were corrupt, right? And we're getting paid to say that climate change was happening. And I told them, well, I'm an academic. I publish. I'd be happy to tell you about my experiences applying for grants and and getting funding to do research and publishing my own work. And it occurred to me that people have these perceptions about how things happen, but they've never actually heard from people within, right, the academic community. So telling my own story to this bargainer about my experiences helped them see that that was a stereotype and a generalization and, and certainly not true for me and not true for most people. Yeah. I mean, in some sense, just like my old Christian missionary friends, you know, somebody who's slogging away, trying to raise enough money that they can do the research so that they can write a book about climate stuff this mm -hmm. way. It, it, it's a labor of love. It's, you do it, it, it's a missional endeavor. You know, you, it's, there's, it's, you know, it's tough work to, to, to stay in, to, to do this work. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a misperception that grant money just goes into the researcher's pockets when it actually goes to funding students, to building supplies, to paying people to do surveys. I mean, it doesn't go to us, <laughs> but y'all yeah. are just normal salary. The university pays us. Well, listen, I know enough about storytelling to know that if I carry this conversation on very much longer, I will continue to be interested because <laughs> I and, it, you know, but I, I, I know like John's going to be like, hey, we need to cut this down to an actual podcast. So, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, I just want to say thank you for not just for coming on and talking with me, but also I, I really appreciate the work you're doing. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I hope that anyone listening thinks that my work maybe just challenges assumptions that they're making about Christians or about the environment and can encourage us all to have more climate conversations. Yeah. That's my greatest hope. <laughs> well, well, I'm with you on that one. And uh, I'll put all the details about the book and everything in the intro and the outro and stuff like that and uh, and on uh, the show notes. But uh, this is great. This well, is, thank I'm, you so much for having me. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 will not, I will not come to Las Vegas again now that I know that you're there without looking you up and, and checking in. Sounds great. <laughs> all right. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks, Bart. All right, there you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I enjoyed that conversation. I, I, I probably didn't do as good a job as I could have of getting at the, getting Emma going. Because it was funny because after 
we stopped the podcast recording. We kept talking for a while while we were waiting for all the electronic stuff to work itself out. And John told me later, he's like, she got so comfortable. Like you guys, you guys really got so animated. And I thought, yeah, that is my problem. I, I think that sometimes when we're doing the podcast conversation, people, they get careful and maybe I get careful and I sound too much like an interviewer and not enough like a friend. So I'm, I'm going to work on that in 2020. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff in 2020. I'm excited about the podcast. I'm, I'm worried about everything else in the world, but I feel really good about the work that we're doing, trying to forge new ways of, of staying connected and, and, re, and relating to people and, and, and promoting loving relationships and, and promoting wonder and awe and the kind of stuff that maybe will motivate people to solve the bigger problems. I, I'm excited about what we're doing in the midst of being scared about everything else. And, uh, and here's my quote, which I pulled. It's, it's a quote by Verlin Klinkenborg from the book, What Are Dinosaurs For? And I found this, in, actually, actually, that's not the name of the book. Klinkenberg has a book that is reviewed in the article called What Are Dinosaurs For? in the New York Review of Books on December 19th, um, 2019. I get the New York Review of Books. It was my parents' Christmas gift to me last year. What an amazingly cool publication it is. I'm not going to go on and on. I'm just saying, if you're into books, it's the best. Um, anyway, Klingenberg wrote this book about dinosaurs. and, and uh, or actually, Klingenberg didn't write the book. There, he reviewed four books about dinosaurs. And at one point, he says this, but the obvious quotidian logic of chronology is basically too much for the human mind. And by the way, quotidian, I looked up, it, it sort of means simple, um, straightforward, I, which I wouldn't have known. I thought it meant, you know, incredibly complicated, but the obvious quotidian logic of chronology is basically too much for the human mind. We're constantly confusing sequence causation, and purpose. Because we come after, it's easy to suppose we must be the purpose of what came before. That's what recent generations of humans have supposed and continue to suppose. Such is the nervous logic of living not only in the present, but also at the constantly moving end point of the chronology of life on earth. Because we come after, it's easy to suppose we must be the purpose of what came before. Wow. I think I'm going to let that one speak for itself. All I know is I've made that mistake over and over again on both sides of my deconversion. I've made the mistake of confusing my own desperate desire for meaning and purpose and my tendency to create it out of thin air with that being a fundamental law of the universe, which it manifestly is not. Because we come after, it's easy to suppose we must be the purpose of what came before. All right. Put that in your pipe and smoke it.
And when you're done smoking it, I'll come back. I got one more episode up my sleeve before the end of the year. We're going to do an end of the year episode, me and John, Q&A. We'll talk about some stuff. Um, but mainly, I got to be honest with you. We are started, we've already started lining stuff up. We're going to come into 2020. And I think we're going to, I think we're going to have a good year. I think we're coming into a good year for Humanize Me. I hope so. And I'm glad you're part of it. I'll see you next time. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.